0: Ice Greetings and pentatonic platitudes, people. This is your positive podcast pontificator, Kevin Brown, and it is my honor having such prolific and prodigious professionals in the audience. We love P words for some weird reason here at Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. One of my personal P word preferences is pulling, as in pulling someone's leg. Now, for you Generation Zers out there, pulling someone's leg, what does that even mean? It means to deceive playfully. Interestingly enough, the origin of the Expression is in the criminal world of 18th and 19th century London. Street robbers working in tandem, one would trip up the unsuspecting victim and the other would remove his money and other valuables while he was lying on the ground. Sounds like going to purchasing, right? Well, if your leg is pulled now, you won't lose your money, but you might find yourself on the receiving end of a good laugh, like the receiving guy I work with. I know it's ironic, right? At the hospital the other day, I passed him as he was talking with his boss out on the loading dock and, like a hit and run, I thanked him in front of his boss for letting me drive the forklift that morning to move some totes around and how much it saved my back. The look of horror on his face made it all worthwhile as I quickly jumped in my truck and got the heck out of there. We had a good laugh about it later. I had an even bigger laugh recently. As a recipient of said leg pulling, I had misplaced my MacBook I used for navigation. Some well-meaning employee had put it in a storage room I didn't even know existed, apparently, so I showed up at the OR a few days later with a reward for... For the nurse who had graciously gone out of her way to help me find it. I was at the control desk and asked the orderly standing there, look, is Valerie here today? He said, yeah, she's uh, she scrubbed in with Joe right now. Joe, I asked? He said, Joe mama. I just about lost it. That was just so awesome. Three quick observations. Number one, that was just comic genius. I didn't see it coming. Never considered that fifth grade might be waiting for me at the front desk that day. Number two, this orderly had now been officially promoted to disorderly. Not everyone can achieve that lofty title. And now number three, he was now part of the leg pulling team. Someone I could count on to help me in the pursuit of keeping everything a little lighthearted. I would get that opportunity just a few days later. My joint commission was going on. The OR director and the entourage with clipboards were making the rounds and I offered my disorderly friend a crisp $100 bill. What is it about throwing that word crisp in there that makes it even more valuable than it really is? I don't know. I offered him a crisp $100 bill to go up to the director with great concern on his face. Of course, front of the entourage and say, look, I left a lasagna in the autoclave to warm it up and it's gone. Nobody can find it. Any ideas where it might be? Well, what happened next genuinely surprised me. He immediately put his hand out and said, deal. Deal. I pulled out a Twix bar and started thinking of the long-term career implications for both him and me and decided to keep that hand firmly at my side. He tried to wear me down and he was going to do it anyway without the money and walked away and it took a minute and I realized this genius was now pulling my leg. It was a comedic bilateral. You know what? Our episode today is just that, part two of a staged bilateral. See how I brought all that together? We did the left last episode with Dr. Andy Schwartz, just a great conversation, always interesting. interesting. Interesting to hear from surgeons on the front end of their career. And today, we're going to do the right. An inspiring conversation with his fellowship director at Duke, Dr. Michael Bolognese. You're going to want to hang around for that. And don't worry, the only leg pulling we're going to be doing today will be strictly for distraction and visualization. Well, one thing that really got me distracted in a good way this week was comments I received from so many of you regarding the quiet quitting thing we talked about last episode. The question I posed to all of us, including me, is medical device sales a job or is it a mission? Well, here's one I got. And I quote, listen to part of your newest podcast. I hate to say it. All the extra I do has always been my mission to serve and make everyone else's job easier. But in the past few months, I feel it turning into a job. I don't want that but not sure how to fix it, unquote. Well, what a thoughtful question as it can sneak up on any of us mission-minded folks, right? Back orders start piling up. What was sales becomes more and more administrative, finding yourself surrounded by unhappy people seemingly all in job mode. How to fix that? Indeed. Well, first let's define these two words. Job, the performance of services for which remuneration, say that word 10 times fast, is payable. I see a job as like a quid pro quo arrangement. I do this for you. You pay me that. Well, let's define mission. Mission comes from the Latin word missio to send. And in the context of our convo, it has more of an outward flavor, doesn't it? As you would never do something for a patient on a medical missions trip and say, okay, now you pay me. It's not really a quid pro quo at all. So back to the letter. I feel it turning into a job. I don't want that. Not sure how to fix it. Well, here's three ideas for you. Let's go to the spa for inspiration. Sorry, I can't pull off eucalyptus wafting in the air and a hot stone massage in a podcast medium, but I can give you a mnemonic. One day, I'm going to blow everyone's mind and create a mnemonic out of mnemonic. Well, here's our mnemonic today. Spa. S-P-A. Serve people anyway. Simple, yet exceedingly difficult. And why the word anyway? Anyway. Well, look, there are amazing people in this industry, but they're also, well, the opposite of that. And when you're faced with working with the latter, that can either be your team, that can be in the hospitals we work at. One hospital I worked at took years off my life. It was so toxic. The backbiting, gossip, and subterfuge was so epidemic from all quarters, the reps, the staff, everyone. I did not enjoy going to work. I finally had to decide I can be in this hospital but not of this hospital and serve these people anyway with a smile on my face. It was a sheer act of will. And you know what? It changed everything. Having a mission focus made serving these people more palatable. It's so much easier to love those who love us, isn't it? Quid pro quo. And we can easily fall into that arrangement on a negative end with the people who bring that misery into the workplace and start giving them the same shade They're throwing out. So here's an example for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Last week, I was putting together trays in Central. It was the end of a long day, and I had already moved 16 tons. My back was on fire. A petite CSS female employee came out, surveyed 15 trays that had gotten dropped off for a revision the next morning, and I could see it in her eyes. And I could hear in that big sigh, she was not looking forward to moving all that stuff. I said, look, I've repped that system before and I know it's a big lift. Want me to load it up on this cart for you? Her eyes just lit up and she said, please, so I loaded it up. She went to push the cart. She couldn't even get the thing going. Those plastic OR carts are the worst. So I said, let me push it in for you again. Huge smile. We got it into the dirty side. I thought to myself, okay, she's four foot nothing and has to get that 20 pound stem trial tray up there on the top rack. I didn't even wait. I just said, look, I'll load this up for you. I put the whole thing in the washer for her and I walked out of there and the look on her face got me around the track for the rest of the week. Mission accomplished. No Money exchanged hands, no quid pro quo, right? Helping her wasn't a job. It was just an intentional act of service. Key phrase there, even when it hurt. Helps keep us on track, right? It helps keep me on a mission track, serving people with a smile on our face that can't pay us back, that won't pay us back, especially the ones who pay us back gossiping behind our backs, right? The mission minded rep serves people anyway even if they don't deserve it. The job rep, on the other hand, easily falls into quid pro quo, which is ultimately creating a self-focused rep. And in a business that's 75% relational, I'm not pulling your leg here. That is not a recipe for long-term success. I wanna encourage you, because I've had to walk this out myself. It is possible to be on a team, but not of the team, to be in a facility, but not of the facility. Like the whole idea of love, it's not a feeling, it's a choice. And I believe that as we make that choice to serve people anyway, the job mindset will begin to diminish and the thought of quiet quitting will be the ridiculous concept it always was. And going to work, well, it'll be more like a trip to the spa. Well. Not always. <laughs> we'll keep those cards and letters coming. Always appreciate the feedback. Just some incredible people in the Device Nation audience. And an amazing audience deserves an amazing interview subject. And today we have just that. A conclusion to our Blue Devil bilateral, Duke Chief of the Adult Reconstruction Service, Dr. Michael Bolanese, And what better person to open us up than his very own fellow?
1: After just finishing my Adult Recon Fellowship at Duke, I do feel uniquely honored to introduce my mentor, fellowship director and friend, Dr. Mike Bolognese, or Simply Bolo. Thanks, Schwartzy. (laughs) Appreciate it. Because of the sheer uniqueness of everyone in the world, it seems inevitable that we'll all have people that we jive with and those that we don't. That's not the case for you, Bolo. Universally universal love by anyone and everyone, uh, be they patient, poly friend, or even random passerby, Uh, you (laughs) epitomize the concept of gifted surgeon, Healthy clinician, fervent mentor, undying supporter, strong leader, and, of course, old friend. Uh, that said, I look forward to hearing from the man himself. Oh my gosh! Thanks, Horch, man. I, I've uh, I've been introduced a couple of times, and uh, that's got to be right up on top for one that's uh, appreciated and heartfelt. Thanks, man. No, it's good. I. You know, great year with you, man. I, I'm uh, excited about what you did with us, and, uh, you know, that's why we're in this space, right? You know, trying to uh, make sure that we keep this profession going, and you can carry the torch, man. It's a little bit of an uphill road we have ahead of us, but folks like you are going to make sure we do it the right way. So, man, really enjoyed our time. I look forward to the rest of the time we'll spend together as colleagues, man. Uh, you uh, you laid the groundwork, and uh, you set a high bar for me to follow <laughs> too kind
0: well Dr. Bolo that was some incredibly kind words from Dr. Schwartz and it's such an honor and a privilege to have you on Device Nation as it's not every day I have people on the show that I've actually been in the OR with so much to talk about from <laughs> UNC Football, Acus, your work as yeah. an advocate for surgeons and reps your role yeah. as arthroplasty Division Chief at Duke and much more but first sir let's go to Durham, North Carolina, the city of medicine. What put you on the path to medicine?
1: Oh it's interesting actually Kevin Like, so my my dad was a a PhD virologist, guy studies viruses. He uh, was at Duke and his appointment was through the Department of Surgery. He got a job here at Duke after finishing sort of his postdoc stuff, raised his family here, and obviously I'm part of that family. And so, you know, we never really departed outside of some school stuff. And um, that's, that's how I got in Durham, man, and was fortunate to have a lot of my education along the way tie me to Duke and, and the city. And so I've just stayed. Here's the kicker, Kev. The real reason I'm still here is my wife, Kelly, is actually from Durham as well. So you know how that
0: goes. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's really is. <laughs> You're going nowhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's a, she's a wonderful lady. She went to Southern Durham High School. Her folks, obviously, were here. Uh, uh, yeah, we're Durham folks, man.
0: So when was that moment when you said, you know, I want to go into medicine, and of all the disciplines... I'm thinking yeah. orthopedics.
1: I think it probably really got hammered home when I was at UNC Chapel Hill, and I was, you know, trying to figure out what to major in, and, and I was uh, walking on the football team from 1989 to 1993. I sort of interacted well with the sports medicine staff to cover the team. And I think at that point, I sort of figured that like, man, orthopedics seems pretty cool, you know, and so maybe I'll major in biology to like get on that track. It sounds a little bit like cliche, but a lot of people that go into orthopedics have some sort of like sports tie at some point. And I think I, I count in that group. Obviously, I didn't go into sports medicine, but that's probably like what first got me thinking about it.
0: Did you enjoy your football career there under the legendary Mac Brown?
1: I did, man. What a wonderful guy, man. He's a great mentor. You know, when I first got there, we were one and ten. That was our first year, in nineteen eighty nine. And actually, I don't know how many people know this, but the year before that, in eighty eight, Mac was also one in ten. So he was two and twenty. Wow. I guess you don't keep your job these days if you're two and twenty. But UNC saw something good in him, and God bless him. But you know, when he left, it they were eleven and one, and I think it was ninety seven or ninety eight. My senior year, we were nine and three, and won the Peach Bowl down in Atlanta and the Georgia Dome. Just an incredible experience. You know, still have dear, dear friends that were teammates, obviously, and talk to every week. Man, it's, it's it's a pretty special experience.
0: I saw a Twitter post of yours recently pointing out rude boys on a yeah. brick oh, walkway. Yeah. <laughs> Please discuss. Tell me about it.
1: All right. So this is uh, it's disputed, but like so. Rude Boys is the original name for the defensive backs at UNC Chapel Hill. And so these guys, Tim Smith, Rondell Jones, Sean Crocker, Lawrence Winslow, Cookie Nassi, teammates of mine. That's what they came up with, Rude Boys. I guess it just means, you know, play hard. Play angry and defend the airways. It was like the no fly zone thing it means, like, if the ball's going up in the air, it's got to go on the ground or you're picking it off or the receiver's going on the ground, I guess,
0: right? <laughs> Love it. So, you went on to Duke for medical school and then the University of Utah for your orthopedic fellowship. Uh, right. What was yeah. that experience like?
1: Incredible. So, I, I trained with Aaron Hoffman, obviously a great in hip and knee arthroplasty sort of a giant. It was a uh fellowship just with him. You know, a lot of these fellowships these days, like ours, Kevin, you know, it's uh, multiple faculty, but that was a single faculty fellowship at that time and there's pluses and minuses around that but it was awesome incredible you know formative just an incredibly supportive guy super bright guy multiple patents the really neat story about Aaron Hoffman there's lots of them right there's like so many but a great one is he's the guy that came up with this idea about an ultra where, you know, of course, you know, the PCL goes, but you put a CR right. femur, but A to P congruency that keeps you okay. It was an idea had for one patient. As you know, every company has some version of that now, right? right. When I tell this story, I always laugh because I say, you know, it's outside the box. Get rid of the box in the middle of the femur. Don't need a post. You can still have AP stability and take the PCL. People that figure out how to think like that. That's why our field's so great because we had some people that are smart enough to do all these things that we now deliver to our patients, right?
0: So back to 2004 set up shop in Durham. Why did you choose an academic career over private? Was it the opportunity for research?
1: Yeah, research for sure. Bigger piece, probably education. You know, I sort of said to myself at some point, you know, like if Duke offers me, say, an opportunity to come back, obviously be on faculty and do the research part or, and all the parts that are academic, I sort of said to myself, like, if they offer it, you know, you have to go back, right? Because think about everything you got when you were a trainee. It's like service, Kev, you know, it's like, you know, you got to think and say, well, this is the right thing to do. To go, got to, got to go back and help, right?
0: No doubt. I can't wait to ask you more about some of that research that you've done over your career. But first, you serve as a mentor role with some faculty members there at Duke. And I was just curious any notable mentors that have helped guide you through your career?
1: Well, I mentioned Aaron Hoffman in fellowship, incredible mentor. Not enough words but like express appreciation for him. You know, Jim Urbanic, he was the chief when I was a resident, and uh, also I worked in his research lab. Tad Vale, who was the head yeah. of joints, went on to UCSF, current chair there, incredible mentor. I've got some external mentors that are meaningful to me. Dan Barry at Mayo Clinic is a big mentor to me. Jay Lieberman at USC, Keck School of Medicine. It's interesting, man. I've also a great mentor. That's my partner, Bill Juranic you know, came down from— Oh, yeah. What a guy, you know, what a partner and mentor. It's like, you know, it makes going to work easy every
0: day. Well, doctor, here we are, 2022— Tell us about your practice these days. Yeah,
1: so practice obviously steeped in hip and knee replacement. I think we're in an interesting time. You know, right now we're trying to figure out what, you know, value-based care means. I actually think of it as like an exciting space. Right. I think we're in a position where we can probably get in a spot where it's recognized that we deliver Not only the operative care, but even the care that gets people ready for surgery, maybe even keeps them away from surgery and takes care of them afterward. All those things have to be sort of recognized.
0: CMS just published a 10-year strategic roadmap prioritizing value-based care. For people on the sidelines that are like, what do those three words even mean? Right. And more importantly, what are the implications for providers? Uh, Fill us in.
1: You know, value-based care, I think it's like you're like you're saying, Kevin, sort of like this buzzword thing, seems mysterious. Right. I don't think it is that mysterious. I think what it, for us as the provider is, you know, figure out how to deliver the care you always deliver at the highest level. Think about efficiency and cost, right? You're mm-hmm. responsible in those spaces. At the end, it's got to be the patient's most important, as always, right? Patient first. The payment models will vary, right? But I think right. as we move forward... It's probably going to get to where you don't just think about getting paid just to do the operation, but it's probably also about getting paid to get the patient ready for the operation, whether you call that optimization or preoperative management, or get the patient ready for recovery afterwards, early discharge, same-day discharge, rapid recovery, whatever you want to say. And then also manage them appropriately afterwards. And so I think we got to get a little bit away from just thinking that we were widgets. You know, we, we're, we're people that sell widgets or, you know, put widgets in and, and think about, you know, the entire episode of care for the patient. And if you embrace that, if you're the doc that says, I'm okay with that and figuring out what it means to be the leader of like the care team, the person taking care of the patient getting the surgery. I think it'll be for us in the end to win. People may say I'm wrong, but I I think it's going to be good.
0: Well, Speaking of care team, Dr. Duke Orthopedics, you've been there a while. Any thoughts on a pretty amazing group of people you work with every day?
1: Yeah, exceptional. It's humbling. The patient will say to you sometimes, they'll say, hey, do you have any experts in like foot or ankle or like shoulder or whatever? And I, I always say like, yeah. You know, we have like four or five of them. Who do you want to see, <laughs> right?
0: One thing that jumped off the website at me was offering chiropractic care.
1: Yeah, so we've we've moved to including chiropractic care. Uh-huh. And I think that that's part of us understanding, you know, the whole like scope of care, appreciating like we want to do the right thing for the patients above and beyond like what's just traditional. Expanding our practice to include that has really only just strengthened our practice. It's been nothing but great.
0: Multiple streams of revenue is the yeah. path forward for a lot of yep. practices and I think it's absolutely genius. I want to read you something, sir. Quote, the surgery went very smoothly. Coach is in good spirits. We hope to get him walking <laughs> as early as this afternoon. Unquote. That was a quote of yours after performing <laughs> Duke coach Mike Shashevsky's knee replacement. That's and right. I saw a quote from your former football coach, Mac Brown. How cool is it that one of our former players replaced my knee yesterday? I just got to ask you this, doctor. Yeah. How stressful is it operating... On personal icons.
1: You know, what's more stressful is probably operating on your best friend's mom. Well, that's true. And I, I don't mean that to like a <laughs> little Coach K or Coach Brown, but um, those guys are like such great people, motivated patients, incredible, you know, humans, right? I don't want to say it's like easy, but it's like, um you know, they're going to do their part. They're all in and ready to recover and get better, right? So at that level, it's a little bit easier. You know, it's a little bit easier because you got a great patient because they're, uh, you know, incredible incredible people right i've been more stressed in the or than those i was going to say two times but coach k's got two knees so that's three times cuz i only did one of max he'd already had one done but um The way to get through situations like that is uh, be smart enough, I guess, to pick to operate on people that are incredible folks. Again, I would never try to say like, "Oh, it's nothing; didn't think about it, man." You know, of course you did. Of course
0: you did. True. Well, talking about stressful cases, just for a second, I will never forget being in a case with you and two other fellows, and the case was starting to drift in a little (laughs) bit of a negative direction, and you said, and I'm going to quote: "I'm starting to get that not so fresh feeling." (laughs) And, And everything turned out great, and I got a line that I. I, I use it to this day. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, what's the strategy mentally when a case is trending that direction?
1: I guess my response to that, as you like highlighted really well, is to try to make light of where you are and obviously, you know, patient first. Right. Make sure we're not in real trouble. If my approach is a little bit of levity, I think that like the people that train me along the way, let's say Tad Vale, like, you know, I don't think his heart rate ever got above 60, right? You know, I'm just right. being kind and cool and even measured and not, you know, overreacting to anything. And if you're the boss, so to speak, or you're the surgeon in the room. I think if you take that time to recognize that everyone around you is watching you, they're taking yeah. cues from you, it's sort of like being the head coach. You, you spoke just of uh, Coach K and Coach Brown. Everyone's watching, right? And so. That's true. Don't ever forget that, and use that obviously to make sure everyone that's around you is going to help you get through it because they understand. Hey, we're we're okay, you know. Again, for me, it's make a little joke about something, but understand, you know, we're still very be- very serious about the care. Obviously, what's the wrong thing, Kevin? The wrong thing is blowing up and yelling at somebody. That helps no right. one, right. and we see that, right? You know, no one's perfect. I'm sure I've gotten to that point at some point. But it's not best for the patient. It's obviously it doesn't help the folks that are helping you in the operating room at that point in time either. Well,
0: part of your practice has been acting as a coach. With yeah. residents and fellows, So uh, yeah. what does that look like in your day to day?
1: That's why I wake up every Monday excited to go to work. Right, every year everything starts anew. It's like it's like right. a, a new NFL season or a new MLB season, and it's excitement. But it's because uh, you got a new class of trainees, and uh, you know it's incredible. I mean, I guess it's what coaches think about. I guess it's what teachers think about. I guess it's what anyone in the education realm thinks about. They think about another opportunity to affect something, right? You know, make some guy, some girl a better doctor, right? I mean, in that regard, it's really simple. Like you say, well, I want to go to work, take care of patients and make sure in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, the care is only better than what I delivered. I think that's how you have to approach it.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. One of my relatives was giving me parenting advice just about What our goal was raising children, and I'll never forget what she said: ships were made to leave the harbor, and it ha- it has to be incredibly rewarding preparing fellows like Dr. Schwartz to do just that, right? Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, like we're super blessed. We have this fellowship program that's now four fellows. You know, we interview a little bit around 250 people a year, and they're all in. Incr- Incredibly qualified, and you could take anybody on that list and have a great year. And you know, a lot of times people say, "Well, how do you pick your fellows?" or, or I would say, probably even for our residency program at this level, so a place like Duke or you know, peer institutions, they're all incredibly qualified, exceptional people. It make me and you feel really bad about what we did in college, right? You know, and or what we didn't accomplish. So at that point, you're looking for people that are just you know, someone you want to be around for a year or for a fellow or five years if they're resident and help them on their way. At that point, you're you're winning being around them as they
0: train. I was online looking at your patient reviews. I'm going to read one of them. Dr. Bolognese is excellent and always listens to my concerns and provides superb care and compassion. He was assisted by Dr. Andy Schwartz, who also (laughs) provided great care. There's that name again. I am very (laughs) pleased with the care I consistently receive at Duke Ortho. Your online patient reviews, sir, are exceptional. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on what it takes to create a positive patient experience. Experience.
1: Clinics tough, right? I mean, patients aren't happy. Sometimes something's not going great. Most times if you're seeing someone for the first time, they've got a problem that needs to be fixed, right? Whether it's an arthritic hip, arthritic knee, or maybe it's a, you know, already replaced hip or knee that needs revision. And so, I think the key is, it sounds a little hokey, but I think you got to think about being in their position, think about being the patient. right? You know, because if you do that, you know, I think it makes you know, the interaction just a little bit more meaningful for them. And I, you know, for me, it's always about like, make the interaction not so high stress. Like I always try to like introduce yourself. And this is like, I guess, maybe controversial, but I always say like, Hey, Mike, nice to meet you, <laughs> which I think throws people off. Right. I mean, I think, you know, a little bit traditionally, you're always going to say I'm Dr. Bolanese or I'm Dr. Smith or I'm Dr. Jones or whatever. But, like, right. you know, I, th- I think that creates a little bit of a I don't know, it breaks the ice a little bit and makes it such that maybe lets the patient relax a little bit, you know, like just, just make it feel okay for the patient. When you're talking, you got to listen to them. You got to let them talk. You can't be the person that's going to you know interject and say, oh, I know what's going on. Like most times I go in a room, right? And for that matter, most times Dr. Schwartz would ever go in a room. Like we know what's going on, right? Kevin, you know the deal. Like you look at the x rays, you already know the problem. You got to let the patient share where they are. It's not the quickest thing to do. It's not the easiest way to do it. I think it's part of the relationship you develop with the patient that helps you after, let's say, the surgery happens, right? Because you're saying, hey, I understand where you are. We're going to get you through this. You got to be positive. It's like, that goes back to the coaching thing, you know? I guess. Sure. It's like, it's like, hey, look, we're going to win this thing. It may not be easy, right? We may be down in the first quarter, right? But, uh, We'll get there.
0: Such a huge component of empathy is subordination. Yes. You're yeah. lowering yourself by doing something just as simple as removing titles, removing yep. letters after your yep. name. Absolutely, you're doing that. I think that's incredible. Let's go into the operating room for a minute, Doctor Bolo. Uh, what's your favorite procedure these days?
1: I'm sort of a little heavy on the knee side. I've always have been. I mean, I think you know most folks that do hip and knee, they're a little bit biased one way or the other. And I'm a little bit knee heavy, so I love knees. I just think you know everyone's a little different. And people say, "Well, don't you get tired of doing knee replacement?" And the answer is never. <laughs> yeah, never. Right. I like hip. I mean, I would not, I'm not disparaging on hip arthroplasty, but I just think put them a little more partial to the knee. I love revisions just because, you know, it takes you a little bit outside of a knee replacement. Of course, yeah, it's a little bit more like we know every step. We know what's going to happen next. Again, there's always some variability, right? But like revisions are obviously a little bit more variable, incredibly enjoyable. I love where we are with fixation and predictability about our polyethylene and that sort of sure. stuff. It's crazy. I think if you're training now, you think that poly lasts forever. Kevin, you know, it didn't. Right. <laughs> right. God bless Bill Harris and his team for, you know, getting crossing polyethylene out there. And cause it's obviously changed our lives a lot more importantly for our patients. Right. I guess I would say I like it all, man. I, you know, I like a big case and I like a simple case. I don't know. It's all good to me.
0: Well, I remember when a hybrid knee was a thing and now yeah. I hear of another thing, the reverse hybrid cementing the femur and a cementless tibia. Why do you think we're seeing such a renewed interest and porous knees?
1: I think it's probably most related to multiple vendors having improved ingrowth surfaces, you know, whatever their technology is. And of course, there's differences from company to company, but like improved ingrowth surfaces. You asked me earlier about uh, training with Aaron Hoffman. When I was a fellow, we actually did about 60% of all our knees were cementless. So Aaron obviously was a pioneer, not only of that ultra congruent polyethylene, but he was a pioneer of the ingrowth surfaces, cancellous structured titanium back in the right. day. We did that predictably easily. No real concern about patient age. I'm going to date myself as you, you already alluded to. It's 2003 back then but, or 2004. Right. You could do it back then. It's probably only going to be better now. I think it's the right way to be going. I think we've got to watch and look at like how the different ingrowth surfaces perform and look for anything that doesn't look like it works well. But I, my guess is they're probably all going to work pretty well irregardless of the
0: vendor. While we're talking about not mixing cement, any advice for surgeons that may be putting in a cementless total knee next week, is there anything they should consider doing to make sure that that thing has the best chance of growing in? Yeah, a
1: little biased here, right? But so Aaron always taught us to irrigate the cut, you know, to keep your temperature down, you know, make sure you don't cause some sort of thermal necrosis right. to the bone. Aaron was a big advocate of, and I think it's reasonable to consider like a bone slimmer. You've already cut that bone out, it's really easy to get the bone, mill it out with uh, something on the back table, add a little saline and use that on the interface. There's some decent, decent data from Aaron and his group, Roy Blayvon, in his lab that shows that the in improved if you do that. So I think considering stuff like that, I think you got to be really honest with yourself about your bone cuts and your prep. Cement's a great equalizer, right? So cement can make you look good. If the cut's not quite perfect, right? You can make up for something. If the cut's not quite perfect, to say that's okay, right? There's nothing wrong with cemented fixation. A lot of data behind that, don't we? Because if you try to push cementless where the cut's not quite perfect or the bone don't look that great i think that's where you get in trouble
0: cementless knees are wonderful until you have to take one out i was just curious a lot of these designs now have spikes around the periphery any tips for getting in those back corners
1: it's not that elegant of a tip just so you know but like i think it's all about exposure it's a big full media release don't be conservative about getting to the back of the tibia if you do that big full media release, you can get all the way to the backside and come across a medial lateral to get to that spot you're talking about, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Take that time. To make sure you see the whole thing. I think for g- getting out cementless parts, it's a huge deal to have that
0: exposure. You've seen quite a technology arc over your career from OrthoSoft to PSI to contemporary yeah. robotic and navigation platforms. I'm just curious, does any of these technologies have a place in your robot these days?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they all do at certain times. I think that I'm a little passionate about this. I think we have to know how to do it without the robot, without the navigation, without the PSI as well, right? So for me, I will always train our residents and fellows to do it with the regular tools, those things you carry around all the time. You know? Yeah. Cuz if you can't do it that way, you probably shouldn't have the robot or the, you know, the burr or the haptic arm or the, you know, the, the custom guide in your hand. So, it makes sense, right? I mean, everyone always says this. Robotics is great in so many uh areas and spaces. And so, it makes sense that we should be using them. But I think you got to consider there's times that you got to be able like the robot can it can turn off sometimes, right? It can, you know, the, something, right. something can go wrong, right? So we interviewed somebody at one time. This person during their training actually had never seen a regular knee replacement without the robot. You know what? That doesn't mean they're not qualified. doesn't mean they're not in a position to sort of help patients. But I think if you can't do it without the regular parts, it's concerning, right? So I hope we always, like, teach it the way where you can do it either way.
0: Well, this is a couple of rapid-fire questions for you, doctor. All polytibia, yay or nay?
1: Yeah, it's yeah. I should do it more, yay. Yeah.
0: Stubby or not to stubby?
1: Stubby uh, depends on the implant you're using. If you're worried about, at all about length of the keel and the, and the stem, go stubby.
0: You got a BMI thought on that?
1: If you're above 40 and you're worried all about bone quality, throw it in. Doesn't matter.
0: Patella resurfacing, 100%, 50%, <laughs> zero? Uh,
1: I'm i so, I'm selective, which means I just don't know what's going on in my life, I guess. But right. no, no, I no, I, th- I think if it looks good, here's the biggest, I think, teaching point if the patella looks like it mates or sort of like tracks well with the trial of the femur use, I mean, like it's patella friendly, like whatever that means.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If it tracks well and the patella is good, take the lateral facet off, like just remove lateral facet, de if you want, and then go with it.
0: Single stage or two stage on your infected? Next nah. Stage.
1: You know, here's the Duke thing. Duke, we say 1.5. So we stay in that space in the middle because we're controversial, right? Right. So, we we like to uh, we like to think about putting an implant in that could stay if it needs to, but we can get it out if we have to get it out. So I'm a 1.5. That's probably, like, incredibly not answering your question. No, that, that actually <laughs> did
0: answer it. Bilateral, yes or no? No. Okay. I'm done. Uh, yeah,
1: I think it's, you know, I'm not against, if someone does it, it's totally fine. I just think we've we stopped offering that, or at least I have. You know, mainly outside of concern about complication rate and sort of increased complications, although it doesn't bump it up that much. And you can find studies that say it doesn't. My concern about bilateral is like, I think it bumps your complication rate up slightly enough. That, why would you do that if somebody can just wait, you know, three or four months and get the next slide done?
0: Do PS knees have any place in your practice anymore? Have you gone completely ultra congruent? I'm, you know, 100% ultra congruent since I came back to Duke in
1: 2004. That's the only knee I've done for primary setting. I I, I shouldn't say only. I'm sure there's a couple of like, you know, posted knees that I've done, but very few out of the, you know, Six or 7,000 or so to
0: date. So, I mean, I would say, uh, man, it's
1: ultra-growing. And, like, I'm not saying it's the best bearing, but it's uh, it's it, it works very well. It's very predictable.
0: Have CPS polys replaced uh, kicking the door down on a CCK for your primary knees with collateral instability?
1: I don't think it's completely gone. I think, I think having the, you know, having this working within a system where you can get to that increased level of constraint, the highest level is always going to be something I think you want to have in, in your back pocket.
0: Look at the hips for just a second. Posterior, direct anterior.
1: Yeah, super controversial. I'm posterior, but I'm very, very glad that I run a division and a fellowship where our trainees see every approach, whether it's direct anterior, anterior anterior-based muscle sparing, direct lateral or posterior. So. If you train at Duke and Fellowship, you'll leave here seeing all four of those approaches, and I'm proud of that.
0: Templating still part of the routine?
1: It's got to be. It's got to be. If you're not templating, you know, it's I, <laughs> I shouldn't say irresponsible. That's a little bit risky, but I mean, like, why not? It's like looking at the playbook before you, you know, play the next game, right? right. So, of course, of course.
0: Threshold for dual mobility?
1: Increasing. I'm still one of these guys that's a little bit, I just want to make sure we're not over overusing it sure. sort of thing, you know? I, you know, I went through a tough, Tough time more for the patients, but, you know, for the doc as well, doing you know, dealing with metal on metal. So I just want to make sure we don't create the next version of that.
0: You think we might get a not-so-fresh feeling one day from these uh, dual-mobility metal liner interfaces with these modular shells? Yeah, I well, I think the
1: risk is there, right? And so it may not be an acute thing like we may have seen with some of the, you know, early cut failures on the on the MOM side. But sure. You may see something long term that requires revision that didn't need to be revised if you hadn't used that bearing. So yeah, no, I'm I'm I, I have I have concerns.
0: Here's a quote. I think I might have finally figured out the hip spine relationship. <laughs> you wrote that recently. And then you know when we start throwing out words like pelvic incidence, sacral slope, combined anniversion, a lot of people get that thousand yard stare. A- anything you can tell us to simplify our lives on this subject?
1: I think recognize that there's a relationship between spine disease and dislocation. Understand that most times here's the real simple man's version most times simple man or simple person most times you're gonna add a little antiversion to the cup if you think you see enough spine disease that's significant now you got to be smart enough to understand that every now and then I guess it's less than 10% you want to just leave the cup where you would have or even take a little version out and it's all about what the spine's doing at that point in time right but it's probably more about recognizing that there's this correlation to spine disease and dislocation and preoperative counseling with the patient and planning whether using adjunctive technology CT-based robotics, do something maybe, or do mobility even, as you just asked about. Right. Do something to maybe to protect yourself and the patient, more importantly. Where are
0: we on metal allergies?
1: Yeah, so metal, I think it's real, man. I'm not, you know, I'm a little biased because I, I do uh, work with a company called Toto Joint Orthopedics. And so they have a, uh, you know, non-cobalt chrome knee that they brought out. But other companies have a version of that, of course, and have had. I think we're seeing more metal on metal, or if you're going to call it interface, or something cobalt chrome, allergy-related failures. And so I think that recognizing this is probably what's most important. I don't know you have to change your whole practice. Recognizing that this is something that may be real or missed, Particularly on the revision side, look for it. I think it's something real
0: for the historical record. We talked about infected knees. I've gotten so many calls over the years asking me what are the ingredients for witch's brew that they use oh, over yeah. at Duke. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just once and for all?
1: So I got to give I got to give a shout out to Bill Hardiker, my former program director, and right. may he rest in peace. I got to give him credit for at least part of the formula. So he's used some version of this to irrigate out cases. Golly. You know, when I was a resident, so in the 1990s. And so here it is. So it's, you know, it's betadine, of course, it's betadine. And usually we get it out of the uh, Foley kit, so it's sterile. And that's the concept, you know, that's, de- that's debated about, like, how sterile that is. But yeah. that's as sterile as we can get it, I think. Right. And then we, we put in hydrogen peroxide, It's usually about 200 cc's of that, and the saline. Don't tell anybody I told you that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I will not. I'm so glad you brought up the Foley aspect because I've heard that over and over. We don't have sterile. Beta
1: It is. I think obviously you don't want to like grab the bottle off the side of the wall or whatever.
0: Let's look at some publications for a minute, Dr. Bolognese. You did an AUKUS presentation in 2012 entitled, Why Are Knees Failing Today? And here we are 10 years later. Why are knees failing today?
1: It's interesting. I think we've gotten into this area right now where knees are failing right now, mainly related to probably, um, I think, fixation. Like fixation is uh, our biggest issue right now, which. All right. It seems crazy, right? We sort of probably thought that we figured that out. We haven't. I think it's the latest and most developing concern around tibia. So,
0: in 2016, you did an AAOS presentation comparing metal on metal THA with other bearing options in the Medicare populations. Yeah. Is it ceramic on poly going forward, sir? Or does metal on metal and ceramic on ceramic still have a pulse?
1: Uh, I think it's probably ceramic on poly. And, um, just because of the predictability of that bearing surface at this point and what we've learned from, you know, registries within the United States like AJRR, but even outside of the United States, I think that's a very safe bearing and, you know, responsible bearing to be using.
0: Well, Dr. Bolognese, have we ever brought up salamanders on Device Nation? The answer is no. <laughs> but today is oh, that gosh. day. <laughs> today is oh, that boy. day. From science, I know this is not I know. From science advances, humans have salamander-like ability to regrow cartilage. In joints, what did you find?
1: I can take zero credit from this. We at Duke have an incredibly strong basic science research program as part of our Department of Orthopedics, and I have to give our chairman Ben Allman, a shout out about having developed that. And so, this is one of those projects where you're the surgeon in that space. You are sort of get uh, you're you're lucky to be involved. And you just stand and watch. But the point is, is that like there are opportunities for regeneration of the different tissues in and around the joints we operate on. And of course, a place like Duke's got to be the place that's like trying to figure out where the opportunities to do that. So right. the reality is that cartilage can probably recover, but not always, right? We know that, right? That's why we do hip and knee replacement. And the sweet spot's probably figuring out like how much disease or damage has to happen. Before you know, you can't like, l- do something to intervene and, and treat the, uh, the failure of the
0: cartilage. Put your future hat on for a second, sir. What's the next big thing in our space? You think it's technology like that, or is it something else?
1: I think the next big thing is around orthopedic surgeons evolving their role in healthcare delivery. I know that doesn't sound that sexy, but um, you know, I think it's about I mentioned you know, we talked about it earlier. It's like uh getting beyond just being somebody who gets paid by CPT code to do hip or knee or to do a shoulder scope or do a you know, inc- you know, ankle scope or whatever. I think it's it's gonna be about recognizing the work you do to care for the patient inside the operating room, but outside before and after. And sorry to be repetitive in that way, but I just think that that's where we're going. Again, very biased because I think that that makes sense to me. I understand that that's, you know, where it's going. And I think if if we don't embrace that as surgeons, people make this point a lot. Like, remember when the cardiothoracic surgeons said they didn't want to do, you know, caths, right? They didn't want to be the people doing caths, right? Well not exactly the same, you know, comparison, but like, we don't want to all of a sudden not take care of hip and knee arthritis or musculoskeletal conditions. We want to take care of it, whether it's operative or not. And I think that's the next big thing. And, I um, I think it's just evolving how we train our folks to be beyond like, uh, I'm just going in the operating room and doing hips or knees or shoulders or whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of the patient front and back and uh, and own that care.
0: I want to talk a minute about some of the positions you've had. Your entire career is just chock full of offices held, committee assignments, leadership positions. Uh, I was just curious, any thoughts on what it takes to be successful in that role?
1: Kevin, I think, you know, the first thing is being available, like to get in positions of leadership or, you know, responsibility in, in anything you're in is you know, saying yes, you know, saying, yeah, I'm glad to do that, or I want to help out. And then I think is, uh, you know, being somebody that can listen, you know, being somebody that can listen to people and embrace that you don't have everything figured out, you know, like sure. you need advice, you need you need people to help you make decisions. And so if you're someone that is, you know, you could always say a consensus builder, it just sounds so like, you know, that's what they always sort of say. But I think, I think it, it, there's some reality to that, you know, and just understanding that like, look, if I knew every answer, I wouldn't talk to anybody, right? So Right. I'm, I'm pretty good about talking to people, I think. And so it's benefited me in those uh, groups that you reference. I think it's just, if you carry yourself that way and, and think about interacting with people that way, you, you probably move up to those positions of leadership.
0: First time I ever saw you was in a position of leadership at my favorite yearly meeting I put together for my distributor at the Grove Park Inn, the North Carolina Orthopedic Association. Yeah. You've worn a lot of hats there, including serving a term as president. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, incredible experience. Great group. You know, the best thing about something like NCLA is like it brings together people that are, when uh, I say people, obviously the docs, but uh, beyond that, I think that, you know, from different sort of employment situations and whether you're academic or your private practice, I think it's the neat thing is you all get on the same page to rally around things that are, you know, beneficial for the orthopedic surgeon, right? So it's not, I'm here to look out for the Duke orthopedic surgeon. I'm looking, I'm here to help out. A North Beach surgeon that practices in our state, you know, that's the invigorating and part that makes you get happy about it. That's the best
0: part. I remember sitting in on one of the lobbying meetings, hearing about their efforts at the state capitol to advocate on behalf of surgeons, and I know you have such a heart for surgeon advocacy yourself. Yeah, uh, I, I'm curious, where does that passion come from? Is it just part? Again, here's that football thing. Is it just part of being a defensive back?
1: It got thrust on me, I think, probably initially during NCOA times, right? And then it uh, it just expanded, you know, during my leadership positions with uh, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. When I first started, like going to Capitol Hill and trying to interact with some of our legislators and be in their office and wait for your 30-minute meeting. It was very awkward for me. It wasn't like my most favorite thing to do we, you know, when you first get there. And um, you know, over time, you figure out like, you know, the do's and don'ts and, and how you manage interacting with folks that are they're there to listen to you. Probably not as much as you want, but they're listening, figuring out how to use that time responsibly and effectively. I got to where I'm very comfortable going up to Capitol Hill, going to someone's office and say, here's our issues. Here's what we need. I hope that, like, me learning how to do that is going to, like, down the road and, and or, or now or as we go forward, help, you know, my colleagues that are orthopedic surgeons. I will continue to advocate for us going forward.
0: You brought up AUKUS, sir. You recently handed the reins of the presidency of AUKUS over to the capable hands of Dr. Brian Springer. That organization yeah. has just exploded over the years. Any thoughts as we've now crossed the 30-year mark with that organization?
1: Amazing group. Honored, like so deeply honored to have served in the leadership role for that group. Over four thousand members. It's the absolute pinnacle for hip and knee surgeons from the standpoint of meeting and a uh, professional group. Obviously, an association. I don't know, man. I mean, it's just uh, you got to thank the people before me that you know had the vision to do this. You know, in nineteen ninety one, when this was started, the concept was really about advocacy and you know best practice and protecting people's practices. It wasn't a huge academic meeting. Obviously, it's become that it's the key academic meeting now, as well as being our center for, you know, best practice and advocacy and, uh, you know, looking out for our our colleagues. It was built about like looking out for us as uh, partners. You know what? That's probably why it succeeded. Right. It was because someone had the vision. I don't want to say who it was because there, so, there was a long list of people who were there in yeah. 91. And I'm not one of them, but a lot of them are mentors and former mentors of mine. and They had the vision to make this thing be special and they did it.
0: Well, speaking of vision, sir, I remember back when Reconstructive Orthopedics was kind of akin to the He-Man Women Haters Club on the Little Rascals. Uh, and yeah. little by little, that's changed, certainly for the better. I know you're involved in the Aukus Women in Orthoplastic Group. Tell us about the mission and what y'all been able to accomplish.
1: It should be more of the incredible women that started this group with a little support from me when I was uh, president of AUKUS and just, sure. you know, recognizing that this was something needed. And that's about all I did. But we have, the, uh, you know, the real need to expand the opportunity for, you know, not just women, but anyone, you know, underrepresented. To be able to participate in hip and knee arthroplasty care, being able to do hip and knee replacement is exceptional, right? And so. It should be open and available to everyone. The effort behind that is to recognize that our growth and the underrepresented people, individuals, is needed. It's something I got, I guess I would say, got passionate about and remain so. I think we're making great strides. Most of that comes from the leadership within that group you know, those incredible folks that are in that group that are, you know, my partners, my colleagues, they're only going to do better and better and more and bigger things going forward. So it's just neat to watch. It's neat to be on the sidelines. I hate to go back to the, you
0: know, the football,
1: <laughs> the football reference, but it's neat to be on the sidelines because I'm honestly like incredibly proud of them. And more importantly, like just respect them, you know, like I respect any other member of AUKUS or any other partner or anybody else that does what we do. And we're, we're all blessed to be working together.
0: We have a theme going on today, sir. We know what? We all know about AUKUS. We know about the Academy. Hip and knee society. Uh, yeah. A lot of people don't know exactly what that's all about. Eliminate our thinking.
1: Both are sort of have to apply. They're societies that contains the leaders of our field from the standpoint of education and research and I guess you'd say delivery of care. There certain criteria about where you have to get to be accepted, you know, part of the society. And we continue to enroll members every year. You know, it's one of those things I think for me that I said, well, I want to be a member of the hip society. I want to be a member of the knee society. So getting to that point and getting into both of them were very meaningful to me. It's small. It's about a hundred or so docs internationally for each one, hundred on the hip side, hundred on the knee side, maybe a little bit more than that. For me, it's like able you know, to be around the people that I've always considered to be the greats and again, mentors of mine. And the fun thing will be going forward will be the people that will train under me or you know, <laughs> or yeah. train under others. I think that that opportunity to be around those folks or the next greats or the next, you know, whatever, the value of that is huge, right? It's great to be around people that are that exceptional. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be part of.
0: Another thing that I'm so excited that you're a part of, you've really extended your heart from mentoring to device reps. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you on as a board member here at another society. Yeah. The Society for Medical Representative Advancement. Absolutely, and I, I know. Yeah, I know yeah. many reps may be wondering right now, why would you want to help us? I
1: would throw it back at you, Kevin. I would say, like, how much have you guys helped us over the years, right? Like, how many times, you know, in the, in the operating room, do you say, "Hey, Kevin, you know, what size is this thing, or what am I supposed to do here? How's this thing go together?" I would say there's this like dearth of uh, opportunity for interaction around education between the docs and the reps, I think it's gonna be groundbreaking because we're gonna have this situation where the only thing that's gonna happen from coming together around education with reps and the docs is improvement of care for the patients, which is like everybody wins, right? You win, I win, and everyone's better for it, right?
0: I totally agree. Exciting things ahead on that front. You've had a lot of us reps pass through your doors, and I know you've seen a lot of diverse behaviors over the years. Any advice to those of us (laughs) who want to achieve peak reps?
1: Oh, I think, you know, like this sounds a little, I'm going, God, I got to get off the football stuff. You know, be prepared, you know, know what you're talking about. Right. I think the biggest thing, Kevin, is like, if you don't know you don't know that's how I carry myself you know it's like sometimes you don't know the answer to everything and so being okay to say that is fine like that that's okay I think those things I'd say that and you know Get there early,
0: stay late. There is a trap in this business, and I've talked to reps about this, of saying yes to pretty much anything that y'all ask of us. You know, hey, uh, Kevin, is the offset three millimeters if I choose this head? Um, Yeah, when we really don't even know what we just said, right? We just feel obligated to say yes.
1: I think I'm always very respectful when You know, someone says, hey, sorry, actually, that's not quite right, doc. But uh, I I respect that more, to be honest. Or even if you mess something up, like say, hey, I'm really sorry, doc. You know, hey, that thing's not nine millimeters. It's 11. My bad. Like just, you know, because the worst thing is to find out about that two days later. No doubt.
0: It's a lot easier to manage it in the OR than in your uh, waiting room. So, Dr. Polonese, any good rep stories that you can share with us from your career?
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, How much time do we have left? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i i'm gonna summarize it and say it this way i think that the stress and i mean this like with a full heart i think the stress that particularly great reps like yourself put themselves under for preparation is uh you know first and foremost appreciated and i would say the prep as you know if you're a good rep it goes beyond what the case ever needs, right? Right. You know, you asked me a lot about stress around uh, Coach K and Coach Brown's mm-hmm. surgeries. Like I have to think in my heart of hearts that like most times a rep will probably again, if they're a good rep, they're probably more stressed than we are, you know. It, uh, which sounds, you know, you say whatever, you know. It's not the funniest or, you know, most unique story, but I just would say it's more sharing that like I hear where you, you guys and girls are. I respect it. Thanks for what you do, man. I just, I know, I know every, you know, every, every, every night before whatever case must be. Ah, oh, just stresses me out to think about it on your end because I don't want to say I have the easier job, but man, I, you know, some days I wonder if I do.
0: <laughs> well, I will tell you this: just an observation, totally anecdotal. I have no data collection on this at all. I will tell you that a lot of reps I know that have done this a long time have had at least one heart procedure by now.
1: So, uh, <laughs>
0: well, speaking speaking of industry, sir, you navigate industry relationships like few other surgeons I've seen. And I mean that sincerely. Any pointers for surgeons listening on how to engage on that level?
1: Here's my advice as a physician navigating industry relationships. I would say, you know, be open to everyone, whatever size of the company not just the big four, or big five, listen to everybody, you know, show the same respect and interest to everybody. And uh, I think in the long run, you know, I, I, you've alluded to it. I've, I've interacted with numerous companies over the years, most to my advantage, full disclosure, right? Not always like huge, you know, advantage, <laughs> but um, I think approach, like, I think sometimes people say, well, I got to be all on one team. And I, I disagree. I, I think being open to this idea of listen to everybody, everybody's going to have good
0: ideas. They don't
1: all come from one company. That'd be my advice. Well,
0: Dr. Bolo, speaking of companies, you've done some work with one of my favorite Companies, TJO, yeah. out in Utah, the Hopman Center. Sure. Both of them have done just an incredible job building this thing. A lot of energy and excitement in the small to mid-sized space these days. I wondered if you had any advice to the small, mid-sized companies and their reps on carving out a place at the table these days with these two vendor pressures and working within the confines of these large hospital systems.
1: Understand and have great expertise about your product and then also deliver the highest level of service, right? You may have to be that rep that's above and beyond. And, you know, for a company like TJO, we've seen them grow sort of with that mantra. And I got to give credit to both Aaron's, Aaron Hoffman, my mentor, but also Aaron with an E, Hoffman, the president of the company for, I think, instilling that sort of approach for the folks that are on the sales side, recognizing that you've got a great product, even though you're not one of the big fives or whatever, big fours. Sell confident, always be there, be available. The volume will grow and uh, they've done a great job with that. I got to give them credit.
0: You know, spending some time with you, Dr. Bolognese, I've heard the word family on a bunch of different occasions. I know it's so important to you. Would love your advice uh, to surgeons and reps just on balancing the knees at home with the crazy hours this business can demand of us. Yeah,
1: it's imperfect advice. You know, force yourself to make that time. You probably won't, whether you're the doc or the rep, you'll miss something be uh i guess <laughs> honest enough to say i'm sorry that i missed that and uh you know make up for it like you know plan look forward it's all about planning for me like i'm incredibly busy travel schedule talk commitments operative you know whatever every like everybody right and so you know i think taking the time to look out six months and say you know got a volleyball game there i got a lacrosse game there and it's probably a planning thing it's not that this is it it's it's not a like, it's not like a uh monumental piece of advice is just plan, man. You got to plan because those things in the end, as you know, are, you know, they matter more than just the work piece of what we do. You can't, you can't do great at work, whether you're the rep or you're the doc, unless you're, um, you know, managing what's on home, you know, what's on home plate.
0: Well, family's all about legacy, sir. And as we close up shop, what do you want your legacy to be?
1: I think I want to be considered, I guess, as an expert in hip and knee replacement, you know, I guess you could say, well, maybe you're, you're there. I think there's some greats, right? There's some greats in hip and knee arthroplasty. And I want to be thought of by the people that I trained and the people that I've met as someone that, you know, did it at the highest level, you know, did it absolutely at the highest level and uh, was committed and, you know, didn't just do, you know, care for patients, but also research and education to improve what we deliver. And um, I hope in the end that, like, I guess I would say like to get back to one of your earlier questions, like, you know, you asked about mentors. I want someone to think of me like the people I named to you earlier. I want to be, you know, in that short list of people that are, you know, incredibly important people in orthopedics and helpful people and, you know, uh, well thought of. And I I, I I, want to be on that list of people that says that's someone that helped, uh, you know, hip and knee arthroplasty only get better. That's I, I guess that's it, man. It doesn't sound that complicated, but that's that's what I think of.
0: Well, that's strong stuff, sir. You're so invested in people, truly a man in full. Us industry peeps appreciate you so much yeah, and, and your heart for the work we do. And I, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on and sharing uh, thank you, Kevin. your amazing life with us, sir. Appreciate
1: it, Kevin. Thanks for what you do and Device Nation. man. And uh, it's cool stuff. I, you know, I'm... Uh I'm not quite as savvy as Schwartz who, who let us off from the standpoint of, uh, you know, the Internet. But I'm trying to keep up. And so, that, you know, that's what's fun about training people, right? It's like, you know, you stay a little bit more involved in what's current. I guess you can get it from your kids, you know, Instagram and Facebook. But uh, even our trainees, like, keep me a little current. So I, I really respect what you've done with the Vice Nation and with uh, these efforts along the podcast standpoint. I'll, I I'd love to finish one story if it's all right.
0: Oh, please do.
1: So, you know, you asked me about Coach Brown earlier. And I think the point I want to like raise here, you, your finishing question about like, what do you want to be remembered for? When Coach Brown came back the second time to North Carolina, which is right now after winning a national championship in Texas, he sort of this sort of mindset. And, and if you walk in the uh, football complex, there's a huge sign. It's got a, it's a backside picture of one of the players. And it says hashtag, or maybe that's a hashtag. It says 40 year decision, 40, like 4 0, right? Not 4 year I'm going. So it's yeah. not four, it's 40. Right. And so I guess I would want to say that I think like for our trainees, think about that, like residencies, I don't want to like copy them completely, but it's like a five year decision, you know, right. If you think about mentors and where you train and what you want to do, like think beyond the five years or think beyond the one year fellowship. Like I've learned so much from Coach Brown, like embracing the idea that this is about where does this kid end up when he leaves Chapel Hill? And I guess I would say maybe, like maybe you said, what, you're, what do you want your legacy to be? I might say that maybe I want my legacy to be is like when people leave Duke, you know, whether they go into joints or whether they're a resident. And for sure, if there are fellows, it's more about where they end up 10 years and 20 years and 30 years later. And that's what's important
0: inspiring and sage words there. Wow, what an incredible conversation. I want to take just a moment on the sign he spoke of at the stadium. Corporate listeners probably thought he said fourth quarter decisions, so I wanted to repeat it just for clarification purposes. 40-year decisions. That really speaks of a mission mind, doesn't it? Not a job, not a career, not quid pro quo. Great quote by Sean Covey. A career is a profession. A mission is is a cause. A career asks, what's in it for me? A mission asks how can I make a difference? Once you make serving people anyway, your mission, making a difference in their lives with zero ambition, no thought to what we can get out of them, it really becomes exceedingly difficult going back to a job mindset. Dr. Bolognese alluded, great ortho word there by the way, that mission worldview throughout the conversation. And I don't know about you, but it really inspired me to get back on the track and go at it again. We really need to surround ourselves with people just like that who have that common mission mindset. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bolognese and Dr. Schwartz, for coming on. What a great ride! Thank you to you, the greatest audience in the world. Keep those cards and letters coming, and hope you have an awesome and amazing week.